0: So, like the inhabitants of Jericho, the people in these cities of Gibeon or Gibeah, it's unclear exactly what, how we should say that. But there was these, they seem to be a subset of the Hivites because the men who come to Joshua in chapter 7 are called Hivites. But we read in chapter 9 and verse 1 that the Hivites were among those who gathered together to fight against Joshua and Israel. So these Gibeonites seem to be sort of maybe like a tribe from among the Hivites, we could say. So some of the Hivites, everybody hears about the God of Israel and what he's doing for the people. And how the people of Israel are basically unstoppable. God stop the waters of the river Jordan so that they could cross over and God made Jericho fall before them and though obviously these people were defeated before Ai the first time that was because of sin in the camp and when they rectified that they went and laid Ai to waste as well And this is to say nothing of crossing the Red Sea and coming up out of Egypt and drowning Pharaoh and his men and so forth so the reputation of Israel and Yahweh her God precedes the Israelites journey to Gibeah or Gibeon and these people decide you know what, we gotta do something here so they make a plan and they act cunningly as this passage puts it to deceive the Israelites and Israel naively and disobediently falls prey to their deception disobediently because In Deuteronomy chapter seven, we read this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entertaining to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. So they're clearly disobeying here what God had initially commanded, and they make a covenant with the Hivites. They do this disobediently. They do it naively, though, because they get tricked. Where are you from? A far country. Well, which one? Somewhere very far from here. Well, how do we know that you come from a far country? Well, look at our moldy breath. Say, like, well, there's no other reasonable explanation for this. I mean, definitely, these guys must have come from a far country. Look, look how worn out their sandals are. They have to be telling the truth. There's no other reasonable explanation than that these guys really have come from a far country, which is obviously naive. So Israel acts naively and disobediently in making a covenant with these people there are three practical things and then one theological consideration that I intend to draw your attention to this evening the first practical thing that I would like to show you from this text or make uh, some application to you from this text is this we ought to guard against naivety the reality is that there are many who would deceive even in this day and age in various ways the most direct application would be with respect to national policy regarding alliances and treaties etc. since that's pretty much what's going on here so you might remember uh, that uh, a member of the... Boy, I really should have looked up his office. Was he the Prime Minister of England, Chamberlain, who went over to Germany to negotiate with Hitler in '39. Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister. Am I right? All right, I'm going off to the top of my head here. just wrote down Chamberlain. <laughs> so he went over to negotiate with Hitler, and then he came back and proclaimed peace in our time. Right, 1939 because he had a little conversation with Hitler and Hitler, you know, gave him assurances that don't worry you got nothing to stress about just go back to England and everything will be alright. Oh, okay, right? This is this is certainly naivety. There's no question about it and uh, as we know obviously Churchill had been singing quite a different tune about the developments in Germany for several years prior to that. And ended up having his position vindicated when in fact it was not peace in our time but it turned out that Chamberlain had been deceived uh, by Hitler so this is before us here in Joshua 9 this is a instance of national policy alliances and treaties and so on and so forth I mean as Christians we really should think realistically about things like this there is a time to fight and Churchill knew that and you can't always just reason with unreasonable people and not every political leader is acting in good faith so you go over and you have a little chat with someone like, like Vladimir Putin or President Jinping or you know someone one of these guys and they assure you, look, everything's going to be alright. It's naive to just be like, well, they said everything's going to be okay, so I mean, surely it will. Right? So we have to, we we, we really ought to, like, the Bible gives us practical guidance, even in terms of just how we think about political dealings and so on and so forth. We ought to recognize that sometimes political covenants, if I can put it that way, alliances and treaties and whatnot, are held with, or gifts with strings attached or unforeseen consequences, like the Trojan horse. Remember that? All right, we've been fighting for years and years and years, but now these guys decided to leave and give us a gift. Hey, let's bring it in the city. This is, this is a great development. This is just wonderful. It's just amazing how this turned out. I mean, we thought we'd be fighting for a long time, but then they just had a change of heart and actually decided to become really benevolent towards us. This is really wonderful, right? It's naivety. And of course, we know what happened there. They rolled the horse into the city, and by night, men come out and open the city gates, and all the ships come around from where they were hiding, and the city's overrun. Yeah. Look, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even taking a position on this, I'm not a political analyst, but some of raised concerns, for example, about China's investment in the Caribbean, and some of the, the grants and gifts and loans that are happening in various countries and jurisdictions, like I said this morning, I'm, I'm not necessarily even trying to take a position on these things and preach to you exactly what's the right solution to these. But what I am saying is, as Christians, we ought to be astute and aware politically and think of the fact that sometimes people are going to make deceptive treaties, deceptive alliances, deceptive covenants, like the Gibeonites. And we shouldn't just think, well, if a country says they're our allies, surely they are. If a country says they have our best interests in mind, surely they do. Let's enter into a covenant with them. Uh, This is probably the most... Direct sort of one-to-one comparison between the people of Israel making a treaty with uh, Gibeah. or give Less direct application, but we're still talking about sort of political Promises and national issues and so on and so forth we need to we need to think carefully about the things that are that our politicians say to us and Avoid naivety in this respect also I remember years ago I was working in ba- basically more or less a factory kind of setting, and I was talking with one of my coworkers, and she said, she said um, this was before Trudeau's election the first time in Canada, and she said, do you do you like Justin Trudeau? And I was like, no. And she's, she was like she was like why not? And I was like I I don't really think his policies are good. I don't I don't really think he's Seems to be like a good, competent, capable leader that we should elect. You know, I talked to, to her a little bit, and she, I, she, I was like, "How about you, though? You like him?" And she's like, "Yeah, I like him." I was like, "What?" I was like, "Why?" She said, "Well, he's going to reduce the retirement age from, uh, uh, I think it was 65 to 63 or something like that." Was the was the promise that that he had made or something like that? I forget the details exactly. And I and I said to her. Well, who's going to pay for that, paying out two extra years of pension for all the Canadians who retired two years earlier? And she looked at me with the most puzzled look on her face, and she said, the government. (laughs) I I said, well, just just like it is in a household, so it is with the government, in the sense of like, there's lots of things I'm sure you would like to do in your household. You know, maybe you, maybe you would like to upgrade your appliances or, you know, plant some fruit trees in the yard or buy your children uh, a vehicle or put a down payment on a house or whatever. There's lots of things you'd like to do. But you have to ask yourself, can you afford this? And if you don't have enough money coming in, you can't overspend. I said so it's the same thing at the government level, right? So it's naive to think that a government can spend more money than it actually has. And so when the government comes to you and tells you we're going to spend more money than we have and things are going to get better in this country, look, we should not be naive. We, we, we need to recognize that there are such a thing as political wranglings, deception, cunning. This is, a, this is something that's in the text and it's something we should be aware of. There are Gibeonites who will come and try to make deals with us in various ways, so to speak. So this is a practical thing. Less direct application. Matthew Henry says, he's talking about sort of financial scams, and he says, there are those who make themselves seem poor with the badges of want and distress, and yet have great riches, as Proverbs 13 and verse 7 says. Or at least they have no need of relief, By which fraud charity is misplaced and diverted from those that are real objects of it. In other words, people, I mean in his day and age it wouldn't have been sort of like email scams or telephone calls or whatnot. It would have just been sort of beggars. But it would have been like people who put on shabby clothes and go out on the street and act like they need charity. When in fact they don't and it actually diverts it from where it should be going. It's surprising how many scams churches are presented with. I get emails and phone calls on a fairly regular basis from people who have some sort of sob story to tell. And on the one hand, we have to guard against being unfeeling and cynical and being unwilling to extend true charity in legit cases. But on the other hand, we do have to guard against being naive. Because if someone just phones me up and says, you know, look at these old wineskins. Look at this moldy bread. I have nothing. And I'm just like the Israelites here, I'm like, wow, look at this, you really have nothing. You better disperse the church's benevolent fund. If that's sort of the extent of the process, it's very naive. And so one of the things that we put into place is we, we most often say, if it's someone that's unknown to us and we're not aware of their situation, we say, we would like to help you. We're disposed to help you, but we're not, we don't even know you, and we, we haven't really assessed your situation. We don't know what would be the best way to help you, just speaking to you on the phone, at which point I almost always get interrupted, and they say, oh, just some cash would be helpful. <laughs> but I say, well, listen, why don't you come out to church, and we can begin building a relationship with you and get to know your circumstance and what's going on in your life and we can have some conversations about the different circumstances that you're in and we can try to figure out how we can rally around you as a community and get to know you and give you the help that you need with the proper checks and balances and accountability in place for what's going on. Well, I don't know if I can make it this week. (laughs) But listen, Look, we have to not be naive and everyone who comes to us with moldy bread is not necessarily poor. There's such a thing as deception. Right? We've got to think about this. There is spiritual deception as well. You remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Say, if you bow down and worship me, show them all the kingdoms of the earth. He if you bow down and worship me, I'm going to give these to you. Well, Listen. Those aren't even yours to give, right? And Jesus bowing down to worship Satan would not have resulted in Jesus being highly exalted and being given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. It wouldn't have resulted in all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. It wouldn't have resulted in, ask of me and I shall make the nations your heritage, and so on and so forth. It would have resulted in absolute disaster. It was a totally deceptive temptation. This is what happens in our lives as well. Deception is a real thing. Satan comes to us, look, listen, if you do this, it's going to really work out well. Right? Right? God told you not to eat that fruit? You're so naive. If you knew what I knew, you know that eating that fruit is actually better for you. Right? Oh, gee, let us listen to the snake instead of the one who made the snake. Right? The naivety of just giving in to spiritual deception rather than answering as Jesus did It is written. We ought not to be naive. Which sort of leads us to a related but distinguishable point, which is our second practical thing. There is a problem here in this passage, which is self-reliance. Verse 14 of Joshua chapter 9 says, So the men took some of their provisions, and obviously not to eat them because it's moldy, Obviously, not to replace their shoes with the Gibeonite shoes, because the Gibeonite shoes were worn out. When it says they took some of their provisions, it wasn't like to make use of it themselves, it was to examine. The men of Israel took these moldy loaves of bread and these worn out shoes to examine and verify the story. But it says, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And this is a major issue that arises in this passage. Most of you, if not all, will be familiar with what I'm about to read for you. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. When you are confronted with a temptation, when when something is put to you, should I bow down and worship Satan or not? Should I give charity to this person or not? If you're a government official and you're involved in making a decision about national policy. Should we enter into a covenant? An alliance, a treaty with this other nation or not? Should we make a covenant with the Gibeonites or not? As we make our way through life and we face the various decisions that come to us, the various forks in the road, do you trust in the Lord or do you lean on your own understanding? Do you pray about decisions? Do you seek counsel? From the Lord. It's real It's real simple. If you don't know what to do, the first thing you should do is pray. And even if you think you know what you should do, probably still the first thing you should do is pray. Because what the guys in Joshua 9, their situation was that they weren't confused. They thought that they knew what they should do. It doesn't seem like they were really up in the air. It seems that they were like, well, the story checks out. We know what we should do. Boom. Well, is, is asking counsel of the Lord part and parcel of your life, of the way you practice Christianity? Do you look to God's Word for guidance? In the Reformed tradition, we don't believe that God speaks to us today, per se, in the sense that there are words that He says that we could write down This is what God said. But nevertheless, God certainly guides us in terms of providentially opening, closing doors. Sometimes he gives us inclinations in our hearts one way or another. Sometimes a little little check inwardly when we're about to make the wrong choice. And we just have a sense, you know what, I need to wait on this. Sometimes it's through counsel with others and means that he's appointed about... Getting advice and considering something soundly and so on and so forth. But listen, He has spoken. And so we go and find what God has said about various issues. And obviously, they're not always explicitly dealt with. And yet, we work out, we try to work out the principles and the applications of Scripture in such a way that. It could be said in the decision that we've made, we've asked counsel of the Lord. We've trusted in Him and not leaned on our own understanding, so on and so forth. As I said, even Jesus guarded Himself both against naivety as well as against self reliance with these words It is written. We can guard ourselves against being taken by really digging into the wisdom literature. By really thinking about the worldview that scripture gives us. The nature of mankind. You remember at the end of John chapter 2 it says, Jesus did not entrust himself to man. Why? Because he knew what was in man. When we read the scriptures we come to know what is in man also. To the point where we say, not so fast. You bring me some moldy bread, you bring me some worn out sandals and tell me you're from a very far country. (laughs) That's not enough for me, because I know what is in man. See, and you, you get less naive as you immerse yourself in the Word of God. And you, as you immerse yourself in the Word of God, by definition, what you are doing is not leaning on your own understanding but learning to trust in the Lord and in all your ways to acknowledge Him and to be shaped and formed by His Word. So that's the second practical thing. The third practical thing I want to show you in this passage is is this, what, what we would call swearing to your own hurt. In Psalm chapter 15, it's talking about those who can ascend... To God's holy hill. O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? If we skip down a couple of verses to chapter Psalm 15 and verse 4, it says, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, he who makes a promise that ends up being disadvantageous to himself and yet still keeps his promise. This is something that God approves of. This is something that God condones. This is the way that those who ascend God's holy hill operate. We make promises and we keep them even when they prove to be disadvantageous to us. In this section of Joshua, at the end of three days they realize, Oh, alas, they're not from a far country. They're our next door neighbors. They live among uh, among us in the land that we're supposed to conquer. But they don't say, well, you know what then? Forget the covenant. Forget the agreement. Forget the treaty we made with them. They deceived us, so we're just going to wipe them out. They don't do that. In fact, in chapter 10, the other inhabitants of that area of Canaan gathered together against the Gibeonites to wipe them out for making a treaty with Israel. They're upset that these Gibeonites have got in bed with Israel as it were and they come in war against Gibeon and the Israelites come to the aid of the Gibeonites you see they swore the Israelites swore to their own hurt but when it was time for them to honor the terms of their treaty they did not change their mind but they kept those promises this is something that we ought to practice also we see it exemplified in the story of the Israelites and the Gibeonites. But of course, it's, it's taught us in Psalm 15. This is what people who ascend God's holy hill do. We make promises and we keep our promises even if it proves to be disadvantageous to us. I remember many years ago I had arranged help with some friends uh, for a certain day that I needed some help. And then that day came, and they just were not, they just didn't show up. One, you know, one was too tired, another one's, you know, I decided this or that, another one forgot about it. This, and they just didn't show up. And I realized, man, these guys are not my friends. You know, and I really like it, like, it hurt me, it cut me, because I realized these are guys who overpromise and underdelivered. These are guys who swore to their own hurt. In other words, they were helping me. I wasn't helping them. It would have been disadvantageous to them to show up. And when push came to shove for them to be disadvantaged by helping me, they decided to renege on their promise. We ought not to be those kinds of people. When we commit to to helping someone, to serving someone, to partnering with someone, to doing something, we need to be people that follow through on those promises. Sometimes the promises we make end up putting us in a crummy situation. This is how life goes. Life doesn't go, speaking of naivety, life doesn't go like this. If you mean well and you're a good person, everything goes really smoothly and things work out and circumstances go good and no one takes advantage of you and everything's all right, that's not how life is. So when you operate in a godly way, with integrity, and you, you're someone that keeps your promises, makes promises and keeps them, it doesn't always go well to you. And yet, the promises you make, you're responsible to God to keep. Who may ascend God's holy hill? He who swears to his own hurt and does not change his mind. As the, Israel's, the Israelites swore to their own hurt with respect to the Gibeonites and did not change their mind. So here are a few Practical things that I think are latent in this passage that we can observe and learn from. As we go through the Old Testament, the circumstances are different, right? We're not really trying to go conquer a land and getting together with swords and marching around cities and stuff. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't get, we shouldn't sit down to have our devotions in the morning and read a section like Joshua 9 and be like, this has nothing to do with the 21st century. In fact, I hope as you've seen tonight, it has everything to do with the 21st century. And as we read these Old Testament narratives, we should see, look, the details are different, but it's very much real life. It's human choices, it's human circumstances, it's, it's the messiness and the complexity of the things we face and the things we go through. And these things took place as examples to us, Corinthians says, so that we may frame our lives accordingly and live differently. So exemplary preaching is legitimate and helpful as we try to go through our lives. And yet the the Scripture is given to us to be more than exemplary. And the Old Testament narratives are there for a bigger purpose than simply to don't be like the Israelites in this case or do be like the Israelites in this case or you know don't be like Samson in this respect but do be like Samson in that respect. The scriptures are given to us for, for that but for more than that. And so we've looked at three practical things from this passage and now I would like to show you one theological thing from this passage. Consider what's happening in this passage and in what you know of God from the larger narrative concerning the theme of what we might call the heart of God. The Gibeonites in Joshua 9, they hear of all that Yahweh has done for the Israelites, bringing them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, across the River Jordan, making Jericho fall before them, making Ai fall before them. And they are afraid and concerned, and rightly so, because the instructions that God gave the Israelites is to wipe out everybody in Canaan. But the Gibeonites assume that Yahweh, the God of Israel... Would not welcome them. If they were to abandon their own gods and they were to repent of their evil deeds and they were to seek the mercy of Yahweh, they assume that that method, that that technique, that that approach of dealing with Israel and Israel's God would not be successful. That's implied in the fact that they didn't go that route. They assumed that they would have to resort to deception and bargains to be spared. I mentioned World War II earlier, I alluded to it. As we... You ever, ever heard the phrase, uh, uh, a prayer in a foxhole? Or, or the, the term, a foxhole? It's like, uh, basically like a little crater, I guess you could say, beneath, uh, below the grade, where basically if there was machine gun fire, you'd be below the surface of the earth and you'd be safe from the machine gun fire. That's a foxhole, right? So bombs would be going off around you, guns would be firing, but you're down here in this foxhole. Obviously, that would be a stressful place to be. And there is this phrase that has emerged drawing on that war imagery, which is, people will talk about someone praying a prayer in a foxhole. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're literally in a foxhole, it's become idiomatic now. You get yourself in a tough situation, and you're, you feel like there's no way out. You can't, you can't kind of get out of there. You're just stuck in the pinned down, in this circumstance of life. And just like the soldiers would pray, God, if you will get me out of this war and get me home to my farm in Nebraska, then I will serve you for the rest of my life. Right? you understand how one might pray like that in such a situation. And people pray those kind of prayers in a foxhole in the circumstances of their lives. So someone that they love goes into the hospital and they say, Lord, if you will get that person out of the hospital, then I will serve you for the rest of my life. Right? This is a prayer in a foxhole. This is the idiom, the way the phrase is applied. If then, bargains with God. Or someone is a very bad person. But they feel like they can sort of atone for their sins or perhaps at least somewhat atone for their sins. Maybe by giving them a large gift to the church. Making a large donation. Or perhaps, if not the church, maybe a charity of their choice. Some youth organization that works with underprivileged kids or something. And they so they feel like they'll do something, and then hopefully God will kind of overlook some of the evil and sin that they've done. When people live like this, they're assuming that they need to make bargains with God. They're assuming that the heart of God is not to forgive, that the heart of God is not to help, that the heart of God is not to bless. And that there needs to be some level of bargaining with God. Or perhaps some level of deception, acting like a good person, doing what a good person would do. Clean yourself up before you come. So that you can bring something to the table. So that God will think you're a good person. And then maybe He will have dealings with you. The Gibeonites' view of the heart of God is that he would not just welcome them if they just came and said, listen, we don't want to deal with our gods anymore. We know that the iniquity of the Canaanites has reached its full measure. And it's not just the other Canaanites, it's us too. We're sorry. We heard that you're a merciful God. We'd like to take shelter under your wings. Implicitly in this story, the Gibeonites do not believe that about the heart of God. They think that they need to come with deception and bargains in order to be spared. But look at Rahab, who we read about just a couple chapters earlier. She was basically in the exact same situation. She heard about everything that Yahweh had done for Israel But what did she she do? She just threw herself on the mercy of God. She didn't resort to deception and bargains and so on and so forth. She just said, look, we're afraid. And when you come and you conquer this city, just please spare me and my family. Just a simple request. And look at what God did. We just dealt with that not that long ago in the narrative as we've been walking our way through Joshua. God forgave God accepted her she became an Israelite John Gill says God would not likely have disapproved of the Gibeonites becoming proselytes even though God had given instructions to wipe out everybody in Canaan that would include Rahab strictly speaking and yet we see very clearly God made an exception when Rahab abandoned her own people and said listen I'm on Yahweh's side on the Israel side. Give up on my gods. It's only the mercy of Yahweh. That's my only hope. Look, even though God said you shall show them no mercy and totally wipe them out, God approved of them making an exception in Rahab's case. Likewise, Gil says, God would not likely have disapproved of the Gibeonites becoming proselytes. Matthew Henry says, Had they owned their country, in other words, told the truth about where they were from, instead of lying and saying they were from a far country. Had they owned their country, but renounced the idolatries of it, resigning the possession of it to Israel, and resigning themselves to the God of Israel. In other words, we no longer possess the land, but we're asking the God of Israel now to possess us. We have reason to think, Joshua would have been directed by the oracle of God to spare their lives. And they needed not to have made these pretensions. What have we seen? As we've considered this whole Exodus, of this narrative. What have we seen of the heart of God? Is God the kind of God that comes to deserving people? That the Israelites in Egypt were a bunch of really, really deserving, meritorious people. And God was like, well... Look at what they bring to the table. I've got to go get them out. No, uh, to quite, quite the opposite. What we see is that God brought an undeserving people out who simply cried out to Him. And God heard their groanings and came to them and brought them out. And when they came out, we read that there was a mixed multitude with them. And we've seen that come up a few times. which mean, What that means is Egyptians left Egypt with the Israelites. And they left the gods of Egypt, and they left their land and their kindred, as Abram had done many years before, to go to a land that Yahweh would show them, believing His promises and taking shelter under His wings and following Him. And we've seen God bear with these people over and over again. And we've seen God accept those like Rahab, even from among the Canaanites, who come to Him. There was no need for the Gibeonites to resort to deception and bargains in this passage. There was no need. We've seen that this is not the kind of God that God is. But rather that God is the kind of God who, as Jesus made explicit many years later, God is the God who says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if these guys heard about Yahweh and all his great deeds and said, listen, we're done with the gods of Canaan. They didn't help Jericho. They didn't help the Egyptians. We're done with these guys. And if God has ordained to give these Israelites the land, let them have it. Whatever Yahweh does, whatever he wants to do, that's fine. Just let us be called by Yahweh's name. Let us be numbered among this blessed people. Let us throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Had they just come like that, the God that the Scripture reveals to us would have had them, would have received them, would never have cast them out. The Gospel is not that good people who come with strong enough deception, moldy enough bread, worn out enough sandals to trick God, get accepted. Neither is the gospel that people who come with compelling enough bargains, covenants, that you be our allies and we'll be your allies. God, you be on our side and we'll be on your side. Neither is the gospel that those who come with compelling enough bargains, foxhole prayers, gifts to the church, whatever, those guys get accepted. That's not the gospel either. You don't need to make bargains to come to God. You don't need to deceive God to come to God. You can just come like Rahab and just say, listen, we heard who you are. We're done with our gods. We renounce our former ways. We just want to take shelter under your wings. We just want to be among your people. That's all you got to do. Just come to God. The gospel is a gospel of grace that Jesus came to do everything that is necessary for us. That he lived in our place, that he died in our place, and that he rose in order that we might rise in the same manner and live with him forever. There's no bargains necessary. No deception necessary. Just come. Matthew Henry says, How can we do better for ourselves than to cast ourselves upon the mercy of a God of infinite goodness? What is a better plan than that? Just cast yourself upon the mercy of a God of infinite goodness. Gibeon's could have just done that. And then we'd have Joshua 9 and 10 read real differently.